0: Well, throughout all my years at seminary, uh, my teachers, not a single one of them, ever told me the definition to the word nativity. Now, I'm risking something big here. I'm actually going to tell you that I don't know what a word means in front of a whole bunch of people that probably know what this means. So just please don't fire me. But nativity has a definition, believe it or not. And here's the definition. I'll read it in full to you. It says this, the occasion of a person's birth. Okay. So, yeah, we're not really responding to that. I think that's, that's kind of the point. I read the definition of nativity and I was shocked. I thought there was going to be more oomph to it. I thought there was going to be more theological depth to it. I thought I was going to get all the Christmas feels at once by looking at the definition of nativity. It shocked me that I have a nativity. It shocks me that all you guys have a nativity. And when I say it like that, it seems just kind of rote, it seems kind of bland, it seems kind of ordinary. The word nativity isn't very nativity-y, especially in the church, right? We think of nativity, we're like, we got kids up on stage, we decorate the entire church, we're singing songs all about it, and then when it comes to the actual nativity, it just means the occasion of a person's birth. Where am I going with this? I'll tell you. I think, in the year in, year out, we kind of start to assume that the nativity— the big nativity, Jesus' birth, becomes bland, becomes rote, becomes something that we just think about during Christmas time, becomes something that we just get to stick our kids up on stage and kind of get a little enjoyment out of that for. But the incarnation, the nativity, God's plan to become one of us, to save us, isn't just something that we think about for four Sundays a year. This, in this case, three Sundays a year. It is something that we, as Christians, and even if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, it is something that we ought to think about day in and day out. I think we're tempted to see the Nativity, especially this time of year, where everything seems to be about the holidays as some sort of commercial ploy, a way to get more money out of us. Or maybe we think today that because uh, it is kind of going to the backside, we celebrate the Nativity, but maybe not just Jesus as part of the Nativity. We might be tempted to think that it's just some ancient myth and science is figuring it out and we really don't need to celebrate the Jesus part of the Nativity. Maybe we're tempted to think through it and say, you know what, this is just a story. It's just a story, but its goal is to make me happy. Especially around Christmas time, the days are getting darker, it's getting colder, I'm seeing more of the family that I say out loud I love, but we need this this happiness. And you know what? During this season, I really find it in the nativity story. Maybe we just think this is just the same old year, same old Green Pond sermon, and this is just going to be the same old nativity story. Today, I hope God's word will change our hearts. That we will be able to see the truth of the nativity, not just the story. And in fact, the story here in Matthew is a lot different than what we have set up around the church. But that we would be able to understand the importance, the ongoing importance of incarnation when God became man. I'm going to give you the big idea ahead of time. It's this. The Emmanuel gives salvation and strength. The Emmanuel gifts salvation and strength. We're looking at God's work of becoming a human being for our good, not just 2,000 years ago, but the real ongoing effects of what Jesus' birth means for us today. So look with me in verse 18. We've just gotten done with the genealogy, the three 14s, and we get to this end in verse 17, right? All the generations of Abraham to David, the 14 generations, and then from David to Babylon, 14 generations, the exile to Babylon until Christ. 14 generations. And Matthew takes time to double-click here on the birth of Jesus. We got through the history of it. Now we're going to see the actual big event. So in verse 18, he says it very bluntly. He says, The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. And then we're introduced with the problem. It's not our typical entrance into the Tiffany story, but here Matthew makes it clear there is a problem with the birth of Jesus. Verse 18, he continues, after this, or I'm sorry, after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Here's the problem. Before Jesus is even born, Joseph finds himself in trouble. Mary finds their uh, relationship, their engagement in trouble. When we think of engagement today, we think of Instagram posts and a ring. Back then, it was legally binding, right? This was pretty much their marriage already. And for Joseph to find out that Mary was with child before they had consummated their marriage, that was a big problem. That was something that could jeopardize, and we'll see here in a moment, does jeopardize the future of their relationship. Probably more than that, Joseph is thinking, right, this isn't just costly to our relationship, but this is costly to me. There's major consequences for me if I should choose to go through with this. How will people look at me? What's the cost to my reputation, maybe even financial, wealth, security, as I continue here? So the problem, Joseph finds out, isn't just a relational problem, but it's also a costly personal problem. What will he decide to do? The drama unfolds further here in verse 19. So her husband Joseph, knows the language there, her husband, that's how official their engagement was. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. So Joseph hatches this plan, and he thinks it's a good plan. And being a righteous man, we would tend to agree, given the information that he has at this point and the the cultural right feelings about what is going on, he probably thinks that this is a good plan. The Bible here calls him righteous. The Bible says that his motivations are loving. He doesn't want to drag Mary through the mud or anything like that. And so what he'll do is he'll break off the relationship privately. He won't make it a grandstand. He won't defame her in any way. But really, he is trying to get out of the relationship. So he comes up with this solution. And thankfully, there's an intervention. Look at verse 20 with me. There's a problem, Joseph's solution, but then God intervenes. Verse 20, but after he had considered these things, that's his secret divorce plan, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And so the Lord intervenes. Joseph has his plan. He thinks it's a pretty all right plan, given the hand that he's been dealt. But God says, no, I have a different plan. And I just want to pick out uh, a few things here with you guys, right? After you consider these things, so that's, that's that's the determination. He is going to move forward with his plan. He's considered it fully, and he's decided this is the deal. So whether it was that night or a few nights later, whatever, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. This is God's word to David, or I'm sorry, to Joseph. That's my next point is about David. But to Joseph, right? That God says, this is not part of my plan. This might be part of your plan, but my plan is to go forward with this. And look at that. He does say, son of David, right there, appeared to him, saying, Joseph, son of David. And again, that just pulls the entire Old Testament in with us. What's Joseph's role in all this? Well, Joseph is from the line of David. To fulfill these prophecies of the Messiah coming to us to save us. Joseph is part of God's plan. But then look at the next part. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Joseph here is wrestling with fear. Maybe the fear of loss, right? The relational aspect of it, the cultural reputation aspect of it, the financial aspect of it. Whatever it might be, Joseph here is wrestling with what it will cost him, and he's afraid that continuing on in his relationship with Mary would cost too much. His decision here to divorce her secretly is driven by fear. It's driven by fear. And God comes and reassures him, right? intervenes on his behalf, saying, Yes, I know you don't know everything that is going on here, but let me fill you in so you can continue as part of my plan. To instill a little courage here in Joseph, the angel gives him two reasons why he needs to ditch his fear And continue on with the marriage to Mary. Look at this. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, this has so much packed into it for us. But just taking this at face value right here and thinking about Joseph's heart in this situation. Probably one of Joseph's biggest concerns is who's the guy? Right? Who's the guy? And why is my wife-to-be conceived, or has this baby, conceived in sin? And the Holy Spirit says that is not the case. The case here is that the Holy Spirit is conceiving this child, has conceived this child in Mary. And that is a comfort because Joseph understands that this is part of God's plan. But it's also a comfort to him because this isn't just any ordinary baby. It is the conception of the Holy Spirit. And here we get the first hint that Jesus isn't just an ordinary man. He's just not an ordinary man that for three fourteen long generations, right, that we've been waiting for, it's actually God himself. That this baby that Mary is holding inside of her isn't just a person, right? It will not be just a son, but it will be God himself coming to earth. But his second reason to continue on in the marriage is helpful for us as well. In verse 21, he says this, not only is this baby from the Holy Spirit, God himself, but in verse 21, he says, she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus. And I get to toot my own horn here a little bit, not because I'm preaching so well, but because simply the fact that uh, Josh is the Hebrew version of Jesus. I should say that backwards. Jesus is the Greek version of Josh. It doesn't say Ryan or TJ or Jesse or anything like that. It says says Jesus. So, I mean, that's fine. But what does it mean, right? It means Yahweh saves. So I'm just going to get off myself here. right? It's Yahweh. Even, Even the part of who Jesus is, his name points to his mission. And so it makes total sense that the very next reason is because he will save his people from their sins. And we just need to slow down and think about this. Because here's Jesus coming to earth, the promised Messiah, and his mission, the stated mission of Jesus coming to earth is to save his people from their sin. This is the beauty, this is the reality of the incarnation. That God is coming as or is coming to us as us, to save us. it's coming to us, as us, to save us. That God's promise of redemption hasn't faltered, it hasn't been delayed, it hasn't been stopped, right? It is complete in the incarnation. That Jesus would humble himself from heaven to earth for the specific mission of saving his people from their sin. And so, Jesus' mission to save people from their sin is our greatest hope. It's our greatest hope. We would not be able to enjoy salvation if it weren't for Jesus coming from heaven to take the form of one of us and to have the mission of saving his people. Now, this perfectly ties into rockets, and I'll explain why. Every year, in tree climbers, when they're uh, in stockade, when they're preparing to do the rocket launch, out here, and we shoot pointed objects at each other at high velocities, Uh, we prepare, I should say, Ted and Jim and the leaders prepare those kids for the excitement of launching rockets by showing them an actual rocket launch video. And I've been in the room, it's a pleasure to watch the video, but you can tell where the kids, or what the kids are hoping to watch. They're hoping to watch that rocket go off. They're hoping to see the great blasts of fire, the thing rattling, the tiles falling off the side of the rocket. But before that part comes, there's all this explanation, right? There's all this math involved, yawn, right? And all like this other stuff going on. And some of the kids are into it. They're like, yeah, tell me all those facts. And my children specifically are like, what? what? I don't even know what's going on, right? And so we, we tend to look at this as a rocket launch. Here is God right the incarnation the launch site for his redemptive mission for us right and we need to respond as those little boys respond to the rocket launch taking place right yes some of the build up like the genealogy might not be like right in our wheelhouse totally understand yet we get to still see the process and the plan of the gospel being fulfilled in Jesus Christ but to look at the actual ignition of Jesus' plan to rescue us from our sin and coming to earth as one of us to save us, that should fill us with amazement. We should be mesmerized by this. It's almost unbelievable what God would do for us. So I ask you this question, can you believe the incarnation? Can you believe it? Can you believe that God would do that for us to save us? Maybe you guys can think about some of your coworkers, friends, family members. Think about what do they believe the incarnation is for? Why would Jesus ever come to earth? Maybe I have a few written down here. Maybe it was just to be a good teacher, right? Just to be a good teacher. He had some good parables and he taught people how to love each other. Maybe it was that. Maybe on the other side of that specific coin would be to deceive, to pull a whole bunch of church-going people away from the things that they really need to consider in life. Some people, like the Pharisees back in the day, thought that the Messiah was going to come to overthrow the political governors. We would never think that, but maybe some people would believe that Jesus came to overthrow. Maybe it was simply just to love, right? Just to meet people where they're at and just make sure that they're they're affirmed. Maybe the world would say that on Jesus' best day, he was the model of morality. That the perfect person would live like Jesus, and somehow we could attain that. Maybe it was simply just to die. He was just a human and he died and that's great. And the rest of it is just a made-up story. Maybe it's to empower. Right? We would think that um, Jesus came to affirm our lifestyle, what we want most out of life. The world believes a lot about the Christmas story. The world believes a lot about the nativity, the occasion of Jesus' birth. Today I want to ask you guys the question as you kind of think through all the people around you and what they might believe or think or, you know, uh, confess. uh, I think a deeper question is what would you say Jesus' mission was? What do you think the purpose of Jesus' birth was? What do you believe Jesus came to earth for? Here, simply and beautifully, the angel tells Joseph exactly what Jesus' mission was. He will save his people from their sins. The Emmanuel, God with us, gifts us salvation. We can't find it anywhere else. And honestly, we don't need to find it anywhere else because Jesus does it perfectly. He is God who came in flesh to do something we can never do for ourselves, to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sin, to save us unto himself. This is such a miraculous thing that I love what J.I. Packer says about it in his book, Knowing God. If you haven't read it, I suggest you read it. But he calls it the unfathomable event. There's a lot of amazing things Jesus does, and there's a lot of mind-bending miracles that Jesus does, and there's a lot of, I'll say, um, amazing things that happen during Jesus' life on earth. But the incarnation is the unfathomable event that we just as humans can't wrap our minds around it, that God would come to us as us to save us. But when we believe that this did happen, not just factually, but I'm going to say I'm going to base my life on the truth of the Incarnation, the rest of the Gospel makes sense. Some big questions we ask about the Gospel make sense only because the Incarnation happened. Does God really care about me? I hear all these stories about the God of the Bible. I don't see him around. Could he actually care for me? The answer is yes, in the incarnation. God the Son humbled himself to earth in the form of a baby for this specific mission to save us from our own destruction. God really does care, and it's proven in the incarnation. Another question Is my sin really that bad? Honestly, seriously. Like I've only stolen $30 billion. It's not that big of a deal. Is it really that big? Does it really matter that much? Yes, it does matter that much. You think about it as God being the holy God. The one who is over all things. The one who gets to set up his world, his way. And here we are sitting as people who reject rebel against god's holiness and yet god is the one who heals that separation through jesus our problem can only find its solution in god's divine intervention is redemption really possible maybe you're on the other side of that coin right maybe you're not wondering is my sin really that bad maybe you already know that your sin is in fact that bad Right, And it causes the shame and the guilt along with it that, that piles up so high that you might not even believe that redemption for you is even possible. And yet, the Incarnation says, yes, redemption is possible. That only God himself could bear your punishment and earn your righteousness. We have this moment of thinking and praising God that Jesus' work is the exact work that we need and is the exact work that we could never do. The question of redemption possibility the answer is yes, in the incarnation. Fourth, can I be assured of my salvation? This is a big one. Because yes, you might have said the prayer, you might have been baptized, and yet the devil will tempt you to think, right, that was an event back there in the baptismal, right, or that was just a single prayer, but look how you've lived since then and heap up that continual guilt upon you? Can I actually be assured that God's work is enough, that my salvation, my redemption is actually eternal? The answer is yes. Here we see God's king, Christ himself, coming to earth, dying for us, but then raising victoriously. God would prove that he is the effective salvation for us, by being raised from the dead. That couldn't happen if Jesus was not God. Can you be assured of your salvation? Yes. I consider you guys to be close enough with me to share a very big question with you. Do you guys consider the incarnation daily? Do you guys consider the weight, the unfathomable event of Jesus coming to earth as one of us, to save us from our sin? Would you say that that event has application? You see that working out in your life daily. Again, I consider you guys close enough to to probably venture a guess. No, of course not. We aren't perfect. I'm not perfect. But thankfully, the incarnation has an ongoing reality for us today. Look at verse 22. Matthew continues. He went through the Joseph problem, he went through Joseph's solution, he went through the angel's divine intervention, and now he reels it all back. And we now see that he's going to quote Isaiah, right, to help us understand what's going on. So, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Verse twenty three, we see this, this is Isaiah seven fourteen. It says this, see, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. If you haven't heard it already enough, right, the Emmanuel, Jesus is God with us. But let's take a look here a little deeper, right? Because maybe we're familiar with this story, maybe we're not. But this quote here, Isaiah 7.14, talking about this virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. This is actually happening in the kingly courts of Ahaz. And at the time, Ahaz has a gigantic problem. Not only is Aram coming down against him from the north, but Aram has also gotten an ally. An ally was the ten tribes of Israel above. Israel, Ahaz is the king of Judah. And these guys are squaring up to take over Ahaz's land. Now, that would probably be a great source of fear. And it was for Ahaz. Ahaz was finding himself, trying to think through all the possible solutions he could come up with. And his top solution was turning to the Assyrians to buy their, uh, buy their army, pretty much, to rent them out so that he could defend himself. And so Isaiah walks before Ahaz and says, buddy, don't do that, right? That's, that's not the plan. The plan here is to remain faithful to God. And then he asks him in a very, in a very uh, blunt way, ask for a miracle. And Ahaz phases, or I should say uh, feigns, Faithfulness and said, I'm never going to do that. God's too powerful. I would never do that. But God says, well, hold on. I'm going to show you something that will prove that I am with you and you do not need to be fearful. And that's where we get this verse. The virgin will become pregnant, give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. That happened in Ahaz's day. But Matthew is taking that prophecy and loading it into here and saying, this is the true presence of God that takes away our fear. See, God with us dispels Ahaz's fear of the Aram army. And today, Jesus dispels our fear of the circumstances around us. We, on our best days, are still probably like Ahaz. And maybe on our better days, we're like Joseph. Our circumstances generate fear. And we make this choice between fear or faithfulness. God here, in giving the Emmanuel and bringing Jesus to us, is not just to save us, but to help us live faithfully. God with us fortifies our faithfulness. You don't need to flip there, but this, this theme throughout the Bible, and especially in Isaiah 7-14, is actually picked up by Jesus himself. At the very end of the book of Matthew, the very last verse, he's going through the Great Commission, he's outlining what a life of faithfulness for a disciple of Jesus looks like, day in and day out. And he gets to the end here, at verse 20 or I should, sorry, verse 19 says, "Go therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you." There is the guideline for what our lives as disciples look like. But then he says this, the very last part of the whole entire book, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here Matthew is doing this fantastic job of connecting the dots for us. And what he's saying is, he's saying because God is with you, not only is there the gift of salvation that you can receive, but also when you do receive it, God never abandons you. He never forsakes you. And because of that, Right? You can be faithful in the midst of the fear. The Emmanuel gifts salvation, but he also gifts strength. Jesus fortifies his disciples. He fortifies us here and now to be strong in faithfulness. Jesus' promised presence strengthens us to faithfulness now. I think the temptation is to think that the nativity happened all the way back then. Jesus came as a man, he lived for his 30-some-odd years, and then he was taken up to heaven after his resurrection. But Jesus' presence with us is a continued promise of God that moves us away from fear and moves us toward faithfulness. So I ask you guys, what are you struggling with over fear? Where is the fear versus faith battle for you? In this story, we read tons of drama, family drama. Is that it? Is fear washed over you with family drama? Could be dread. What is coming down the pike of life? I don't feel like I'm prepared, whatever it is. There's fear in the future. Could be finances. Just around this time when we're spending a lot of money on things and the bank account doesn't look as high as it used to. Could it be finances? Health. Church body is struggling with a lot of harsh physical realities. And that is a major cause of fear. Family time, your own reputation, your own sin, the selfishness you give into. Where is it that Satan is tempting you to be fearful instead of faithful? The ongoing reality of the Emmanuel strengthens us now, knowing that Jesus never leaves us, never forsakes us. That his promise to be with us is sure. We might ask the question, well, how would I even know? Again, Jesus is up in heaven. He's not here walking the halls with me, drinking coffee with me, wrestling over pumpernickel bagels with me. right? How do I know? How do I know? Thankfully, the Bible tells us four ways that Jesus' presence is still with us. The first is this. When somebody believes, when somebody repents of their sin and believes, the indwelt spirit comes to live in them. dwells with them. We know that we can be faithful because the Spirit empowers us to, to do so. And maybe not just be faithful to make the right decisions, but also just faithful to return to God when sin mounts up in our lives. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is part of His presence with us. The church body is another continuing presence of Jesus with us. And the, the epistles, the church epistles, right, talk about how the body, the church body, is the body of Christ. And we look around the room and we say, you guys don't look like Jesus to me. And that might be true, we really don't know what he looks like. But nonetheless, we live in a way around each other that would show each other right, the faithfulness of Christ. To love us despite of our mistakes. To encourage us to faithfulness. To help meet our real needs that we have ongoing. The church body helps us see the ongoing presence of Jesus. Then there's the Word of God. Jesus is called the Word. Right? He is the Word of God. And when we look at the Bible, it's not just words and sentences and paragraphs and stories for us, but it is the Spirit's capturing of Jesus' wisdom and faithfulness and salvation for us today. And a lot of the time we struggle with faithfulness or faithlessness and fearfulness is because we might just not know what God's Word says about it. And not that that isn't anything that's bad, but it is a moment where we can say, I could grow in what Jesus says to me about the situation that I find myself in and how, through the Holy Spirit, I'm equipped to be faithful there. And lastly, Jesus' full-time mediation. I love this one. I love when we went through the book of Hebrews as a church, looking at Jesus' sympathetic stance towards us. That yes, he ascended up to heaven, but he's still with us. And he advocates the reality of the atonement for us before God. Not that God would ever forget, but if God is glorified in the salvation of sinners, then Jesus' worship of God is to constantly pour over us the truth of what God did for us. And to pray on our behalf that we would have strength to live in that faithfulness. The indwelt spirit inside of us, the church body around us, the word of God before us, and Jesus in heaven above us. Jesus is with us. And because he's with us, we don't have to give in to fear. We don't have to give in to fear. We can be faithful. And Joseph turns out to be quite a faithful guy. Look at this, verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Joseph hears the divine intervention, the message that the Messiah is coming, and he responds with faithfulness. Today, we need to be like Joseph. We need to hear the story of the nativity to understand what it means for God to dwell with us, to save us from our sin, and respond with faithfulness. We get to the very end here, verse 25. He remains faithful to the Lord. He remains faithful to Mary here. But then we get finally to the actual occasion of Jesus' birth. At the very end of this last verse, she gave birth to a son. There you go. That's the nativity. It is kind of weird though, because you're looking at Matthew and you're thinking of the other nativity, especially Luke's, that has all the animals and angels and shepherds are sprinting left and right, right? It has the whole town deal going on. And you're like, this nativity looks nothing like that nativity. And again, this nativity does not show up in our hallways, right? But Luke's nativity does. Why would Matthew show us the occasion of Jesus' birth and actually focus so little? On Jesus. It seems like what Matthew is doing is just focusing on all the drama around Jesus' birth. I think it's to point to two things. In this not really nativity e nativity, right? Filled with human drama rather than the angels, animals, mangers, shepherds. We'll get to the wise men next week, but it's to show that really the focus of the nativity is the person of Jesus Christ. It is the person of Jesus Christ. We have a problem. We come up with all the solutions we can possibly muscle up. And yet, God is the one who intervenes with his divine plan and his divine power to bring the person of Jesus here to be one of us and to save us from our sin through his death. The nativity really is about a person. And again, I think the temptation here is to kind of blend it with all the other things, the family time, the presence, all that stuff. But when we're thinking about the nativity, we're thinking about Jesus's work to come to earth to be one of us and save us from our sin. Nativity really is about a person, and that person really comes to a broken, messed up world. I think part of the reason why we can be so distracted from the nativity is just because we look at the world around us and maybe think to ourselves, did it really do anything at all? Maybe we even look at our own hearts and say, did it really do anything at all? And it does. The nativity proves that God cares for us to the point where he enters into our unsanitary world to save us from our own destruction. I would venture a guess that our Christmas celebrations are going to look more like Matthew's nativity with all the human dark drama that goes on than Luke's. Luke's probably smells worse. But right in reality, ours is probably going to be filled with more drama. And not just this Christmas time as we look forward to next Sunday, but just life in general. I bet our lives as people in this broken world look more like Matthew's drama-filled nativity than we might, we might guess. But that's where the assurance comes from. Yes, Jesus is a real person, and he really came, but he really came for divine intervention into our broken world, into our broken lives, to save us from our sin. God breaks through our darkness to bring us salvation and strengthen our faith. That's proven to us through the incarnation. If you're finding yourself asking the question, is God really with me? This is so broken, everything around me. I'm so broken inside of me. Can God really be with me? The truth of the incarnation says yes, God really is with you. And because of that, if you are stuck in your sin and you repent of your sin and trust Jesus for salvation, the incarnation says you are forgiven. If you find yourself struggling with sin because of the fear, because of the cost of what it might take to follow the Lord in the dark world around us, the duty says God is with you and you are strong because of it. We can be strong and courageous to faithfulness and salvation because Jesus is with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you, Father, for the truth of the incarnation. Lord, we praise your name that even though it's our problem, Lord, you brought the solution. We thank you, Lord, that as you continue to dwell with us, Lord, I pray that you would increase our love for you. And Father, by the truth of the Incarnation, we can rejoice in the truth of you dwelling with us. Again, Lord, I ask that you would help us to see the reality of this, not just at this time of year, but Lord, throughout the the whole entire year. Father, your promise of the gospel comes through Jesus for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.